Our second Bible reading this morning is Psalm 75 on page 13. 11. Psalm 75. For the music director, set to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks, for your name is near. People declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge fairly. The earth and all who inhabit it are unsteady. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. Selah. I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, do not speak with insolent neck. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Certainly, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink its dregs. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, and I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it would be a great help to me if you could keep that page within sight so that you can follow along easily during the sermon. Before we start, let's pray together for God's help. Heavenly Father, we learn from the first chapter of the Bible that when the world was formless and chaotic, you brought order to it by your word. Please, this morning, would you similarly bring order through your word to our often formless lives and our often chaotic hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is one vice of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. If you've read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you'll know which vice he's talking about in that quotation from the book. Pride. According to Lewis, no one is free of pride, but few people are really aware that they are guilty of it. That should make us feel uncomfortable, shouldn't it? A universal sin that's hard to notice in your own life, that's dangerous. The Christian leader Tim Keller puts it like this, Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. Well, if pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, Psalm 75 is the carbon monoxide detector. It can help us identify pride's presence within us. You can see from verse 4 
that pride is the subject matter of this psalm. In verse 4, God speaks to the boastful, telling them, do not boast. Boasting, of course, is closely connected to pride. In fact, the kind of boasting that happens inwardly, privately in a person's heart is essentially the same thing as pride. What's more, the original language of verse 4 could be translated, I said to the proud, do not be proud. And a number of English Bible translations do translate verse 4 in that way. So we shouldn't allow that word boasting to let us off the hook. We may not be someone who boasts out loud, but if you boast quietly, just to yourself, in your own heart, then you're a proud person. And this psalm is addressing you. If you're someone with an inner sense that you are superior to other people, Psalm 75 is coming for you. God wants to persuade us through this psalm to extinguish for good all of our pride and self-congratulation. The psalm gives us two reasons why God forbids pride, and we'll look at each reason from now to the end of the sermon. Here's the first reason why God forbids pride. Pride ignores God's role as judge. Pride ignores God's role as judge. At the heart of the psalm, we find a logical argument. Pride simply makes no sense when you factor in God's role as judge. Let me read verses 4 through 7. And as I read, please listen out for the important little word, for. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn, do not lift up your horn on high, do not speak with insolent neck. For, not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. We can boil all of that down to this proposition. Don't be proud because it's God who judges and God may not share your high opinion of yourself. Proud people put themselves in the judge's seat and award themselves better marks than other people. But verse 7 teaches us that it's not our job to do that, it's God's job. The Bible scholar Derek Kidner sums it up like this, there is no other arbiter but God Therefore, no worldly rank is anything but provisional. There is no other arbiter, judge, but God. Therefore, no worldly rank, me up here, you down there, is anything but provisional. When all is said and done, only God can say, this person has done well, this person has done badly. The judgments we ourselves make are provisional, they're temporary. God might overturn them. He's the the supreme court to which all other supreme courts will have to answer. And it's a very good thing that judgment ultimately belongs in God's hands because we're not adequately equipped to do that job perfectly. God's the one, according to verse 2, who judges fairly. He can do that because he's omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent, present everywhere. 
It's not hard for us to think of examples from human experience of proudful judgments being horribly mistaken. Imagine a 13-year-old boy who dominates every track and field event at his middle school. He starts to think he's quite possibly the greatest young athlete in the world. He has visions of standing on the podium at the Olympics, receiving gold medal after gold medal with a smile and a wave. Then he goes to high school, where he's not only outclassed by many of the older students, he also finds there are students his own age who outperform him. His middle school standards kept him from making a right judgment. Or imagine a girl who is the outstanding violinist out of all the high schools in her state. She starts thinking of herself as a prodigy, a phenom. Then she arrives at Juilliard and quickly realizes she must have been pretty lucky to get in because all the other violinists are better than her. When she takes the subway home to her apartment, she passes a busker playing the violin and she realizes that New York City busker is better than she is. Her regional standards stopped her making a right judgment. Only God can make a right judgment. And at the end of the day, his judgment is the only one that counts. Listen again to verses 6 and 7. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. The area of life that God pays most attention to isn't our sporting ability or our musical prowess. It's our moral behavior. In Leviticus 19 verse 2, God says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness is moral purity. God is saying that he wants his people to care about moral purity because he's their God and moral purity is what he's into. I guess a fierce Viking God might say, Be bloodthirsty, because I, your God, am bloodthirsty. With the God of the Bible, the one true God, it's his own moral purity that he wants his people to demonstrate in the world. And that means when God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, he's not just saying, I want you to be holy because holiness is what I'm into. He's also making his own purity the standard for moral purity. That is a very high standard. And we know what that standard looks like in everyday life because God himself came down to live among us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, showing us the moral purity of God worked out in everyday life in first century Israel. Think about the moral virtues you might be rather satisfied with in your own life. Perhaps it's your self-control. You're a hard worker. You shut out distractions and get on with the job at hand while other people are just making endless cups of coffee and chatting to one another. But do you have the same self-control as Jesus? Jesus was arrested at night, questioned and beaten in the early hours, put on trial at the break of day, flogged mercilessly, then in the morning, nailed to a cross by his hands and feet. And yet, while slowly dying several hours later, he had the self-control needed 
to share the good news of salvation with a thief crucified next to him. Do you have that Jesus level self-control? Do you have Jesus level compassion, kindness and gentleness? Do you have Jesus level righteous anger when it's called for? Do you have the willingness Jesus had to associate with social outcasts? Jesus was and is God. So when God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, he's saying, be like Jesus. Live like him. Don't fall short of Jesus-level conduct. God is the judge and Jesus is the standard. How can we be proud in view of such a standard? According to verse 2, God has specific times for his judging. The speaker in verse 2 is God himself. He says, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge fairly. Throughout the Bible, God selects appointed times for judgment. But the ultimate appointed time for judgment is the future day of Jesus Christ's return. That's the day the Apostle Paul has in mind in Acts chapter 17 when he says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this, Paul says, to all people by raising him from the dead. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. That future day is God's immovable reality. It's the rock in the ocean on which every proud boat will be shipwrecked. Cleverness, wealth, power, none of those things will divert proud boats from the rock of God's day of justice. Pride ignores the reality of that day. If you really face up to the reality of answering to God Almighty for everything you've done throughout your whole life, you won't stay proud because you'll recognize you fall short of God's standard, the standard he made incarnate in Jesus. There won't be any self-congratulation on that day. In the words of Romans chapter 3, we all fall short of the glory of God. And it's God who will be our judge. Pride ignores God's role as judge. I can imagine a non-Christian person saying, well, that, that's fine for your God to ask his own people to match up to his moral standards, but he's not my God. I don't worship your God. And so even assuming your God exists, what right does he have to judge me? It's easy for me to imagine a non-Christian saying that because I can think of at least two conversations I've had with non-Christian friends who have argued along those lines. God answers that, what right does your God have objection with the poetic picture in verse 3? The earth and all who inhabit it are unsteady. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. God's point is that he's fully qualified to judge the whole world because he's the stable one, the master architect, the one who provides all that is steadfast in a world filled with unsteady people. Before we move on to the next part of the sermon, 
we should give some thought to the image of the horn found in verses 4 and 5 and later in verse 10. Picture a bull with long and sharp horns. Those horns enable the bull to resist anything or anyone who stands in his way. So the horn in Bible times was used as a symbol of power and might. To lift up your horn on high, as it says in verse 5, is to say that you are bigger and stronger than anyone who opposes you. In verses 4 and 5, wicked people, by lifting up the horn, are issuing a challenge to God like an ox, tossing its head and refusing to submit to a farmer's yoke or harness. Proud human beings trust that their horn, their strength, will enable them to overcome God, to challenge him. But as we'll see when we look at verse 10 later, those horns pose no threat to God He simply cuts them off. Let's turn now to the Bible's second reason why God forbids pride. Pride ignores God's role in salvation. Pride ignores God's role in salvation. Please look down with me to verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Certainly all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink its dregs. This cup is what the Bible elsewhere calls the cup of God's wrath. I said earlier, looking at verse 2, that there are many examples in the Bible of appointed times set by God for judgment. Those appointed times that have already happened teach us that God's wrath, his judicial anger, is terrifying to receive. Listen to these verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them by his messengers again and again, because he had compassion on his people. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword, and had no compassion on young man or young woman, old man or aged. God gave them all into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The cup of God's wrath is a terrible cup to drink from. When we see in verse 8 that all the wicked of the earth must drink from that cup, must drain and drink its dregs, we should recognize that we ourselves deserve to be caught up in that judgment. We don't live up to God's standard. We don't meet the moral standard displayed by Jesus. We deserve to drink from the cup of God's wrath. And yet, wonderfully and very reassuringly, Psalm 75 doesn't stop at verse 8. The writer of the psalm, identified as Asaph in those details at the top, says at the start of verse 9, But as for me, but as for me, Asaph humbly trusts that he doesn't belong in the wicked category. 
Asaph does not expect to drink the wine of God's judgment. Instead, he says in verse 9, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Israel. But how can Asaph have that humble, eternal confidence? And not just Asaph, but all those people in verse 1 giving thanks to God. How can they be confident that they will be singing praises to God forever instead of drinking the cup of his wrath? The answer lies in verse 10. And I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. That I, in verse 10, I will cut off all the horns of the wicked. It could be Asaph, the psalm writer, or it could be God speaking again, just as God spoke earlier in the psalm in verses 2 through 5. If it's Asaph, it would be Asaph along with all the other people of God, putting God's judgment into action on God's behalf. And you might remember from our sermon series on Malachi, if you were here for that, that we saw something similar happening at the end of Malachi, God's people enacting his judgment on God's behalf. Whether it's Asaph or God, the I at the start of verse 10, whoever it is, the first half of that verse underlines the reality of God's judgment. The horns of the wicked will be cut off. All their power and strength will be cut off. It's in the second half of verse 10 that we find the answer to the question, how can it be that Asaph and the people giving thanks in verse 1 aren't stuck in the wicked category? How can it be that they are spared the cup of God's wrath? The second half of verse 10 says, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. At first it looks like a straightforward parallel, the horns of the wicked are cut off, the horns of the righteous are lifted up. But in the original language, the wicked is a plural group, whereas the righteous isn't a plural group, it's a single person. Perhaps the best way to translate it would be to say, but the horns of the righteous one will be lifted up. Verse 10 is asymmetric. It's an imbalanced parallel. The horns of all the wicked people will be cut off. The horns of one righteous person will be raised up. That asymmetry should catch our eye. It points to the one and only Savior who meets our need. It points to the one and only perfectly righteous human being, Jesus. It's because Jesus was righteous that Asaph, and all God's people throughout history can give thanks to him for salvation from judgment. Anyone who trusts in the salvation provided by Jesus, the righteous one, can say those wonderful words at the start of verse 9. But as for me, Jesus lived a perfectly holy life when he died on the cross. He took the sins of others upon himself. That meant on the cross Jesus was categorized as wicked and so he had to drink the cup of God's wrath. To drink from that cup was more agonizing than the physical agony of crucifixion. We know it was more agonizing because on the night before his crucifixion that's what Jesus focused on, the cup of God's wrath. In the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus prayed to God, Father if you are willing please 
remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Remove this cup from me. Then after praying, when Jesus rose from prayer, he said to Peter, who had drawn a sword ready to fight, Jesus said, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. He took other people's wickedness upon himself so that we could be fully forgiven. If you're someone who hasn't yet claimed this salvation for yourself, it can be yours too through faith. Put your trust in Jesus so that you won't have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. After Jesus' death, he was given new life, new strength. He was raised from the dead and lifted up to heaven. His horns were truly lifted up, just as it says in verse 10. And through union with him, by faith, we too are lifted up. You have been raised with Christ, we're told in Colossians 3 verse 1. Through union with Christ, through belonging to his body, we share in his lifting up. So is there any room left for pride and boasting in the Christian life? No, because we owe our salvation entirely to the righteous one. Far be it from me to boast, Paul says in Galatians 6, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if Psalm 75 has made you feel uncomfortable this morning. Has it made you uncomfortably conscious of pride in your life, a tendency in your heart to exalt yourself above others? Well, if so, I hope Psalm 75 has motivated you to open up the windows of your life to get rid of that deadly carbon monoxide. Pride is dangerous. Because in the long run, pride cannot coexist with salvation through Jesus. Pride takes the approach of seeking salvation through self-salvation projects. And those self-salvation projects don't work. As we heard in our first Bible reading, boasting, pride, is excluded on the principle of faith. For we maintain, Paul says in Romans 3, that a person is justified by faith in Jesus apart from observing the law. In place of pride, we should develop thankfulness, like the congregation in verse 1, saying, We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks. We should give thanks to God for all the good things in our lives. What do we have that he hasn't given us? It's not our place to lift ourselves up because we're not the judge. God is. In addition, we can't claim any credit for our salvation. It was Christ who drank the wine of God's judgment for us so we wouldn't have to. We would be lost eternally among the wicked if it wasn't for Christ and the salvation he offers. Let's give thanks to him now in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us in this psalm a kind of detector to show us the pride in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would make us aware of it. And by your Spirit, would you help us to chase it away? Would it be replaced with thankfulness? Fill our hearts with thankfulness for all that you have done, all that you have given us, especially for your Son and the mercy he showed us when he went to his death on the cross, taking our sin and receiving the cup of your wrath so that we would not have to drink from that cup. Thank you for him. Amen.